Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Let me define a couple of things. And, and I, part of this came out of a, um, if you've ever listened to TED Talks, if you don't get on the internet much, you've probably never heard of them, but they are the latest, greatest thing in corporate world and the education world. And basically, they're 10 to 15 minute little talks um, about different subjects by people, inspirational things. And um, part of this came from a TED Talk that I had heard um, by um, a psychologist, Dr. Brene Brown from the University of Texas. And she is, that is her field of study. She studies shame and how it affects people. And, and the, the, according to one source that I read, um, in, in the course of her study, she became a Christian because it was the only way she could find out or find a way out of the own sh- shame that she had felt in her life. And she just realized that there was no way out of, of this condition of feeling shame apart from the gospel. But in this, uh, and I'm, I'm dealing with shame and guilt because they are, they're both, they're very close, you know, and in normal conditions you would, um, we would use shame and guilt interchangeably. But in, to my way of thinking, and I'll deal with this a little more on uh, in detail, guilt deals with feeling bad about a specific action, which when you violate God's law, when you sin, guilt should be a natural reaction. It should drive us back to repentance. But shame deals with your character, who I am. And it's much more deeply seated. And to, in, in my way of thinking, it's one of the greatest hindrances that we have in the body of Christ to serving God is people just are tied up in this, this condition of perpetual shame, primarily over their past, but sometimes even their present. And it just runs contrary to the gospel. I mean, let, let's face it. You have been placed on this earth for today. Remember, God spoke to Esther. And, and well, Mordecai spoke to Esther, but he's, he, one of the things he said, and I believe it was God inspired from him, he said that you have been placed here for such a time as this. I don't think it's any mistake that as we're coming closer and closer to the return of Jesus, that God has placed us in the body of Christ for this particular time. But he hasn't uh, called us here just to be a placeholder. Just to come on Sunday morning, get a good message, get fired up, and go back out and live your life the way everybody else lives their lives on Monday through Saturday, and then drag yourself back to church and hope to God that the pastor got a message that can inspire you because you got to drag yourself back to work on Monday. He has not called us to that kind of life. He has called us to dare greatly. He has called us to do something so outstanding that when people see what you have done, their only reaction can be, that had to be God, because I know you couldn't have accomplished that on your own. And that's what God's purpose is for us. 
1 John 4, 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is speaking of Jesus, so are we in this world. Jesus has called us to be his representatives, his ambassadors in this world. You can't do that and be ordinary. He's called us to do exploits. In fact, Daniel eleven thirty two, the very last part of that, that verse, and this is to Daniel, this is to Old Testament saints who didn't have the privilege of being born again. Now, they had faith in a Messiah that was to come, and they were anointed for tasks. But Jesus said in the Gospels that the, the, the greatest of all the prophets was John the Baptist. None stood greater than John the Baptist. And yet the least in my kingdom is greater than John. So you stand at a higher place being born again than Elisha, Elijah, any of the prophets, Moses, none of them hold a candle to you right now. And yet God said to Daniel, people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. That's what God called them to do. How much more should he be calling us to do it? In fact, 2 Chronicles 16.9 says something very similar. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those who heart, whose heart is loyal to him. If your heart is loyal to God and if you're a Christian, obviously you have accepted him. He's looking for people that he can show himself strong in their behalf. But if you never get off your chair, if you never put that to the test, you can live an ordinary everyday life. And I don't say that to condemn you, but I'll be honest with you. Most people, um, if you, if people get out and try something, people will, will, they're looking for faults. And if you try and fail, they really will look for faults. In fact, one of this, Dr. Brene Brown quoted this, and I'd heard it in past, in, but I'd forgotten all about it. She quoted um, Theodore Roosevelt. This was from 1910. Um, President Roosevelt had gone to um, Paris and was speaking at the Soborne, which is a very um, elite school. And this is an excerpt from that speech. And I just want you to listen to this. This is, this is, now I don't know where the president was, President Roosevelt, whether he was a Christian or not a Christian. I don't know that much about him. But this will preach. Amen? Part of the reason I'm using it. This is President Roosevelt's speech, and this is over 100 years ago. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, 
because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself entirely in a worthy cause? who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who never know victory nor defeat. It's a proven fact. You cannot find one successful businessman who has not failed in more than one business attempt. Failure is the price of striving. But with each failure, you learn. Why is it that we don't see people getting healed when you lay hands on them for healing? Because Mark 16 says that the, the believer shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Why is that not an occurrence in our midst at all times? One, one primary reason. People aren't laying hands on the sick. And that's not talking about lining up here at church. Nothing wrong with what we did this morning. Nothing wrong with calling for the elders of the church, have them lay hands on you, anoint you with oil. That's biblical. But he's also called us as believers, not as pastors, not as preachers, not as elders, but just everyday believers, when someone gets sick, lay hands on them and tell them you are going to recover and you're going to recover supernaturally fast. Well, what if it doesn't happen? What if it does? For certain, it's not going to happen if you never dare to try. Well, I don't want to give people false hope. The Bible says Lay hands on the sick, they shall recover. Do we believe the simple gospel or do we not believe the gospel? But you can say you believe it, but if you're not putting it into action, you don't really believe it. But one of the things that, that you see is people hold back for a couple of reasons. One, they don't want to fail, mainly because there's shame and failure. Believe me, I'm at that age. I just turned 65 and I'm looking back at my 65 years and there are days when I look and think, what in the world have you accomplished? You had such potential and have accomplished so little. God gave you such gifts and what have you done with them? What is that? That's the enemy saying, you might as well just lay down and quit. You're done. I mean, for God's sakes, you're 65 years old. You're supposed to go hit the rocking chair. Well, I got news for him. I'm not quitting. And I'm not sitting back down. Well, I may sit in the rocking chair because I like rocking chairs. But I'm not staying in the rocking chair. Amen? Well, I don't care how old you are. If you've got a pulse and you're breathing, God still has work for you. Amen? <clears throat> now, right now, I'm looking at... at you know, President-elect Trump, he's selecting his cabinet. <clears throat> and it's been interesting just to watch. And it doesn't matter who, who is the president-elect. We go through this every four to eight years. Because if, if a president's in his second term, it's a whole different thing with selecting a cabinet. You already got most of your cabinet. You're just filling holes. But when you have a brand new president come in, it's a big job. They actually started this back in March. 
the transition team. They weren't, you know, they didn't, how in the world do you know if you're, in fact, the funny story was that the, the hotel where they'd set this up, they had Trump's transition team on one floor and Hillary's transition team on the next floor. And they were, they would meet each other in the elevators in the halls and they were friendly to one another. Why? Because one of them was going to be president and they had to be ready to start picking people. But when you, when you look at this selection process, and it doesn't matter if it was Theodore Roosevelt in the 1900, early 1900s or Donald Trump today, they're, they're looking for people that have done something. Most of them have failed at some things, but they want people that will carry out the president's policies. That's his number one criteria. I don't care how talented the man or the woman is. If they're not going to carry out my policy, I don't want them in the spot. Well, God has the same criteria with us. We're not just his, his cabinet. We're his representatives. We're his ambassadors. We carry the spirit of God on the inside of us. And he doesn't worry about whether we're equipped or not. He's not looking for qualified people. If he had to have qualified people, nobody could ever serve because none of us are qualified. But he will give you the qualifications to do what you will do if you will start reaching out and enact his policy. It's working on his policy that is the key. 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is where you get qualified right here. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I don't worry about my past because my past died a second ago. The man I was 15 minutes ago when I started this sermon no longer exists. He's in the past. It's just a picture. What he did or didn't do has nothing to do with what I'm going to do in the next minute. But shame over past deeds can hold me back. Amen. Now, if you drop down to verse 20 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That is the, the, the message, the policy of Jesus Christ that we have been given to go out and share the good news. If your gospel doesn't make people happy, you're not preaching the good news. The good news is wherever you are, however far you are under the barrel, maybe you're not, maybe you're, you're down so far that you don't even, you can't even feel the, the top of the barrel for the dirt over your head. God still can bring you out. That's good news. We've already looked at it. First John 4, 17, the last part of it. As he is, so are we in this world. It's not just that we're out there preaching the gospel. He's put his spirit on the inside of us to give us the ability to do that. We are new creations, brand new, equipped to do everything he has called us to do. Amen. God has put us here to do exploits. He's created us with exploits on the inside of us. 
Life is to be lived daring greatly. God made you extraordinary so you could do extraordinary things. He didn't put you in the earth in this time just to hold a place, just to exist. He put his nature in you. He put his spirit in you. Why? So that by his grace, by his power, by his spirit, you can rise up in his supernatural power as his supernatural representative to do supernatural exploits in the earth with people who need the supernatural. Amen. And by supernatural, don't mistake, you know, we, we have the spooky natural and then we have the supernatural. Don't miss the supernatural going after the spooky natural. <clears throat> now, I will tell you, when God starts moving, you may get spooked. And when God starts doing things, sometimes you just, it's a little scary. I love roller coasters. If I'm on a really good roller coaster, I get a little scared. If it's not scaring me, it's failed. I don't go back on that one a second time. Well, when I'm following God, if I'm not a little nervous, a little out of control, a little thing in God, I don't know if this is going to work. Well, if I know it's going to work, I'm probably doing it in my own strength. It's when I get out there on the edge of that blade and it's like, God, if you don't show up, I'm going to fall flat on my face. That gets a little nerve wracking. But that's when God shows up. Amen. Now. When you start trying these things, there will be a little voice in your head and it will say to you, who do you think you are? What makes you think you can do this? You're not qualified. I know where you come from. I know where you were raised. I know what your grades were in school. I know who your family is. I know your past. That's the voice of shame. The worst part, sometimes it's not even the devil telling you that. It's your own unrenewed mind. Your soulish nature that you haven't washed clean with the word. That's saying, you can't do this. Never going to work. Remember, the devil knows who you are, but he always calls you by your sin. God knows your sin. But he calls you by name. I like that. I wish I'd have thought of it. it. Wasn't mine. But that voice will always be there. Remember, guilt and shame are not the same thing. Guilt is usually based on your behavior and it's indication that you violated something. God, God is within you trying to direct you. And that voice of the Holy Spirit, when you get off, and it may not be that you're out in gross sin. It just may be that God's called you to do something and you're neglecting it. And he will start scratching at you and he will say, look, you're not. This is not what I've called you to do. This is not where I've called you to be. Why are you out here wasting all your energy on this thing? You're building this great edifice and it, I don't I'm not any part of that. I'm trying to go over here when you have that. That should lead to repentance. That should take you back to 1 John 1, 9. If we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful 
to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even when we do miss it, even when you know, God's not called me to do this, but I'm going to do this because bless God, I want to do it. I deserve this. And a lot of times it's, you know, well, I'm privileged or I'm, I, you know, they need a piece of my mind right now. Usually your emotions are involved there somewhere. And you just, you just let go. Even when you get there, keep in mind, sin has no dominion over you. And all you got to do is turn around and run back to Father. Doesn't matter how dirty you are. He'll clean you up. That's what 1 John 1, 9 does. It's the shower. In fact, if you're out in the arena, I guarantee you, you're going to get dirty. It just happens. Amen. Not an excuse for sinning, but you've got to get out there and push. And a lot of times when you push, you're going to get off the mark. But God, if you've ever, it's people who've driven cars that never had power steering will understand this. But back before power steering, when you learned to parallel park, a lot of times you would sit there and you got the car stopped and you're sitting there trying to turn the wheel and the car's not moving and it's hard. Even when you had steering wheels the size of, you know, a basketball court. But if you let that car move just a little bit, turning that wheel gets much easier when the car's moving. God directs the steps of a righteous man. If you're not moving, he can't direct you. You got to do something. Find something to do, some place to plug in and get to doing something. Then he can direct you and direct your motion. If you're just sitting, standing still or sitting still and saying, God, I want to do something. He's saying, okay, do it. Do something. Well, I don't know if it's you or not. Well, just try it. If it's not me, I'll let you know. At least he has something to work with. Guilt will say, I did something bad. Shame will say, I am bad. Big difference between those. Guilt will say, I made a mistake. Shame will say, I am a mistake. Dr. Brown, in her research, has, has come to this conclusion, and I agree with her, the, that suicide, depression, addiction, eating disorders, bullying, They're all rooted in shame. And shame is rooted in your soul. It's part of your mind and your will and your emotions. Remember, we just read 2 Corinthians. We are brand new creations. That is the spirit, the real you on the inside of you. But you still live in a natural body. But in between those two, you have a hinge. It's called your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions. And whatever your mind, will, and emotions agree with, if they agree with your spirit, you're going to go with your spirit. If they agree with your body, you're going to go with your body. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, we're supposed to renew our mind. In Ephesians, he said we should, uh, we are cleansed with the washing of the word. In Hebrews, it says that the, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to discern between soul and spirit. If you want to know, and I've had people ask me this, it's been a persistent question for years. How do I know the difference between what's a good idea in my mind and what God's giving me as a good as a mind? 
The only way you can do that is to go to the word. If you have a, an important decision to make, you need to read the word more. Just plain and simple. Not study it out, not get into in-depth study. Just start reading the word, primarily the New Testament, the epistles. Just read the word. It will give you, the word itself will give you discernment as to whether this idea is coming out of your own personal desires or what God is directing you to do. It's able to, it's a discerner between soul and spirit. And in, in that case, the, the soul is that un, or your mind, your will, your emotions. And believe me, when your emotions get involved, you're on dangerous territory. Dr. Brown, in her research, came up with a couple of things, and these really sang true to me, so I just want to go through them real quick. And, and she found that shame manifests itself differently with males and females. Big shock. The world will tell you there's no difference between men and women. Uh, you gotta, you got to have a lot of high degrees to convince yourself of that idiocy. For women... The, the cultural expectations and not meeting cultural expectations can bring shame, especially to natural people. But the cultural expectations for women in our society, number one thing that she found was be nice. Second, be thin. Third, be modest. And then the fourth one, use all available resources to master your outward appearance. You know, dress for success, big part of that. That goes for men and women. For men, as usual, it's a lot more simple. <laughs> We're just not complicated creatures. Number one cultural expectation for men, always be in control emotionally. Second, work. Work hard and pursue status. Now, that may not, these may not hold true for every individual, but as a society, this is where we are pushed. The emotional control, um, it's, it's less and less in, in our society today. Um, but I remember growing up, it was the John Wayne personality. You know, you drop your chainsaw and cut your foot off, you just hop on one leg and say, it'll be okay, I'll just walk it off. That's just kind of how men are. And, and <clears throat> I have never met a woman yet that was satisfied with her body. If your hair's curly, you want straight hair. If your hair's straight, you want it to be curly. It's always what somebody else has. That's what I want to be. And then if you get it, you don't want it. That, and, 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 and if, you, if you're thin, you're going to want to put on a little weight, get a little shapely. If you're fat, then oh my God, the whole world will condemn you. At least our, our society will condemn you if you've got a few extra pounds. Don't you dare act like you're healthy and you're 30, 40, 50, 100 pounds overweight. You're morbidly obese. Is it any of your business? Well, society will shame you. And in some ways, society does that um, um, civil law we need to have rules in civil law and we need to to differentiate between different um, crimes 
In civil law, murder is, is much worse than a nonviolent theft. But when it comes to a person and, and your sin, there's no division with God. You're either walking in his will or you're not walking in his will. And if you're not walking in his will, in fact, the Bible's very clear. What is not of faith is sin. That's pretty clear. That's not just, that, that means just not, you don't get out in sin when you're drinking, smoking, and carousing. If you're not standing in faith for the everyday issues of your life, you are being led by your sin nature. And God is not happy about that. He's not condemning you. Don't misunderstand me. But he's calling us to a higher standard. Amen? But for shame to succeed, and we'll, we'll always, no matter, every time you will try to reach out and achieve something, shame will try to drag you back down. And it can only thrive in silence, in secrecy, and with judgment particularly the first two, silence and secrecy. Don't you dare confess your sin. Remember, James 5.16, confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. That, that, the word there, healed, can also be translated delivered. You have a problem with sin? Confessing your sin and getting it out in the open will give you power over that sin. The problem is, and I'm, I'm done it, learned, burned, got burned and backed off. When you go to people and you confess certain sins, you're going to be judged. You're not going to be accepted. I went to a pastor and I'm not going to confess what it is because it's nobody's business. But each of us has our own pet weaknesses. That little sin that just dogs you. It's like a little yappy dog. It's always on your heel. And anytime you get a little weak, you get a little tired, that's what you want to fall back onto. Well, I had one that just dogged me for my entire life. And I went to a pastor. I trusted him. And I said, I need help with this. This is, and I was, I was at a time in my life where I was tired. I was struggling. I was beat down. And I needed somebody to come in and help me out. Pray with me. Get in agreement with me. I wasn't, I wasn't happy. I was dealing with a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. And I went to him and I confessed. And what happened? For the next six months to a year, I heard about that sin from the pulpit every other week. Convinced me. It's not a good idea. I don't care what James said. He's dumb. I'm not confessing this stuff to anybody. And I will tell you, James 5.16 is important. But it's also important that you are very careful who you confess to. You better know that the person you're confessing to isn't a blabmouth. Are they constantly looking to, to know everything and spread it abroad? If they are, for God's sake, don't confess to them. It takes a very mature person for you to be able to go and confess something to and get help and not judgment. Because God's not looking to judge you. He's already judged your sin at the cross. 
When we were yet sinners, he died for us. How much more is he offering forgiveness and absolution and wants to bring you up out of that thing and let you walk in victory over it so you can have a shameless life and start striving to do exploits after that. But until you get that past behind you and get that sin under control, it's hard to reach forward because you're constantly hearing that voice. Well, I can't do that. You don't know what I've done. God knows. And he went to the cross for you anyway. Amen. But it is important that we do that. God help us to church and religion is, in, in, in a lot of ways has made this worse. The world will also, they're trying to deal with shame and get rid of shame because they, they understand that this is not good. Their solution to get rid of shame is to get rid of sin. That's why you have all the LGBTQ activists saying, don't you judge me for my lifestyle. There is no such thing as sin. That's just the social construct that you legalists and you religionists have come up with. No, sin exists, and it is deadly, and it will kill you. Even if you are a born-again Christian, John deals with it in 1 John. He said, there's some sins I tell you don't pray for that person because they need to die physically so that they don't end up dying spiritually. They, there, are, there are situations that are so dire that God will say, look, I want you in heaven we're going to just let this thing run rampant with your body so that you come out early. There are some sins that will cost you time on the earth. Sin is not something to be messed with, but it can't be conquered until you get it out and get it before God and, and hopefully have an accountability partner that you can hold, have, somebody will hold you accountable to not go back and play in that. Amen? But once it's done, you need to strive to go forward with that. Now, our example has to be Jesus. And if you look back at the Gospels, look at my first one, first verse, Matthew eleven nineteen. What was Jesus' attitude towards sin and sinners? Well, Matthew eleven nineteen says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber. Weinbibber's old English for a drunk. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was with sinners so much, they said, look, you're a glutton, he's a drunkard. Look at who he hangs out with. And I hate to burst your, burst your bubble, but the wine he was drinking had alcohol in it. They didn't make out non-alcoholic wine. That's why when in the New Testament, when he uses the example of the old wineskins, the reason old wineskins burst is as the wine is fermenting, it expands. And if your leather on your wineskin is, is dry, it will crack and, and blow up. Now, I'm not, don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating that you ought to just go out and drink alcohol. For the vast majority of the human population, you're better off if you never have a sip. But don't list it as a sin that will send you to hell. I'll be honest with you. Most of the church will judge you much, much quicker for having a drink of alcohol than they ever judge you for, for gluttony or for uh, backbiting and tailbiting and being angry with one another. 
I've known entire churches that had feuds where they're eating one another alive with their words over whether or not somebody has a glass of wine. The wine's not really the greatest thing in the world, but it's mild compared to the backbiting and the arguing and the hateful attitudes. I'm preaching better than you're saying amen. But look at, look at how Jesus confronted the woman that was caught in adultery. Did he rebuke her? No. He said, go and sin no more. He treated her with gentleness, with acceptance. He didn't excuse her sin, but he was accepting of her. You want to see where Jesus got angry and he got really down on people? Look at Matthew 23, 24, or excuse me, 23, verse 4. This is talking about the religionists, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the legalists of the day. It says they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. You want to know who Jesus gets angry with? The legalists who have all their rules and their regulations. And bless God, you better line up and live like they think you ought to live, or you're probably not a Christian. And you don't, we don't know that we really want you in our church. If you're not comfortable with sinners in your church, you're probably in the wrong church. This ought to, people, people ought to be welcomed. The, the, the more depraved they are, the more we ought to welcome them. Because it's the only place they're going to find an answer. That verse, if you continue on through the next 35 verses, there are eight woes. Now, when, when Jesus says, woe unto you, oh man. The only other place I see a lot of woes is in the book of Revelation where he's judging people. Who's he judging? He's judging the people that are putting burdens on people that are unnecessary. We need to get to a point where we don't condone sin, but we are open to one another and realize if you are alive, you still sin. And if you want out, come to me. I'll share your burden. I won't judge you. I'll pray for you. I'll stand with you. I'll be an accountability partner with you. And I'll be honest with you. Pastors can't handle that. Just in our church, we're fairly small. We've got 50 or 60 people. I can't be an accountability partner to 50 people. That's what the body is for. Find a friend. Find somebody that you can, can confess this stuff and get out from under the shame and the guilt, but get a handle on it. Have somebody that will sit and pray with you and take authority over that stuff. But recognize that your list of what you think are the behaviors may not be God's list. Amen? Paul says something very similar in, in Colossians 2. He sums it up in, in verse 21 where he says these legalists, they come down to don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. It's your list of don'ts. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Paul summed it up in Romans 2.1. All through chapter 1, he dealt with, with the world sinning and excusing their sin. And he was not, God is not pleased with that. But in, in Romans 2.1, he goes on. He says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. 
It's not that I may have the exact same sin that you have, but we're all struggling to live the perfected life. And we need help. We can't just be little islands out here unto ourselves. And shame will keep you isolated. And shame will keep you separated. And you'll come and you'll put a happy smile on your face and you'll, somebody will say, how are you? Oh, everything's just wonderful. And inside you're dying. You got things in your life that are just eating you up. But you can't be open about it for fear of being judged and being shunned. God's called us to do exploits, but we've got to get past the sin in our life to be able to do that. Grace destroys shame. Hebrews 12, verse 2, says that Jesus despised the shame of the cross. He nailed shame onto the cross. He died for shame. The cross was a place of shame, and the price of shame was paid on the cross. God's grace and his mercy were poured out to destroy sin and shame completely. And what he judged, we ought not pick back up. Remember, the world's going to try to eradicate shame by just saying there is no sin. For a Christian, we eradicate shame by saying, yes, the sin is real, but the price has been paid. And I'm not guilty anymore. And I'm not ashamed of my past because I don't have a past. I don't care how my dad and mom lived. I don't care how my grandpa and grandma lived. I know the history of my family and it's not pretty. You know, I had a, a cousin who was really into genealogy and she made the statement to me once. She said, you go far, far enough back, you're going to find a general and a, and a horse thief. Meaning you've got some scoundrels in your lineage and you've got some great people in your lineage. If you go back far enough... I don't care. My father, the one that's important, and I, I'm not dishonoring my natural father. He worked 35 years in a job he hated to put bread in my mouth and clothes on my back. I admire him for doing that. But he's not my example. My father sits in heaven. That's where my heritage comes from. It doesn't matter what my grandpa did. Now, there are some curses that, and lineal curses that you may have to take authority. I've done that on a few of mine. But I do it by saying, this is not who I am. This is not my heritage. My heritage is Jesus Christ, my brother, and Jehovah, my God. And that's the heritage that I'm claiming. Amen. Cowering in the corner, being full of shame about your past is just denying the work that Jesus did on the cross. Forgive us for doing that. Amen. He's told us we're not only forgiven, but we're recreated. We looked at that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We are new creatures that sin wants to dominate and control. We are not sinners trying to conquer sin and, and sickness. Amen. Jesus already did that on the cross. Romans 5.5. 5. This is the key to trying to Master that. Hope, this is the NIV version, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given for us. Hope is the anchor of your soul. Hebrews tells us that. Romans 5, 8. 
just down a couple of verses. God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If he died for me when I was at my worst, how, why would he be mad at me now that I'm accepted him and I'm doing my best to walk with him? Amen. <clears throat> but to get <clears throat> out of the control of that shame and that sin, I need to anchor my soul <clears throat> with hope. Hebrews 12. Let's go over there. Look at that real quick. Hope anchors your soul. And, I, and keep in mind, when Paul talks about the soul, you have to read it in context. Sometimes Paul described mankind as a two-part being, body and soul. Sometimes, in fact, more times than, than that, he described us as a three-part being, a spirit living in a body that has a soul, with the soul being your mind, your will, and emotions. I believe that's what he's talking about here in, in Hebrews 12. Verse 1 all through chapter 11, this is chapter 11 is the, the, the message of all of these heroes of the faith. And you've got all these great exploits that he's outlined. And then in chapter 12, he says, therefore, we also, he's just put us in the same category with all of these heroes that he listed in chapter 11. We also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How in the world do we do that? Well, he tells us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the anchor. Looking unto Jesus, the, where it says there he despised the shame, that's a play on words in the Greek. It literally means he shamed shame. Jesus paid the price for shame. And we have to keep looking to him. Now, biblical hope is, more, is, is very different from what we naturally look at hope. In fact, I remember a camp meeting years ago. I'm going back 30 years or more. Um, somebody came in one time and said, hope, a four-letter word. And he was deriding hope. But you, if without hope, you don't have anything to place your faith on. Hope gives your faith direction. And, but, but biblical hope is very akin to faith. It sees the answer is already being there. It's not a wishing and a hoping. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't happen. Hope, biblical hope, has a scripture that it's tied to. This is what Jesus has done for me. And this is who Jesus has made me and what he's called me to. And I'm anchoring myself to that vision that the word gives me of me and my behavior. And I know I can do this because Jesus has equipped me to do it. Then I believe I have it. The hope is out there, but the faith says, I got it now. Well, how do you know you've got it now? Because the word says, I have it now. He says, I've sin shall not have dominion over me. Well, sin does have dominion over you. I've seen what you did. No, you saw what I did, but it didn't have dominion over me. I walked away from that. If I haven't walked away from it, I'm walking away from it right now. And I'm putting it under the blood. And it has no power over me anymore. Well, that was just 30 seconds ago. You need to feel a little bit shameful over it. 
No, I don't. You don't need to hang on to shame for two seconds. Cast it aside. It will only be a weight and an anchor to slow you down. That does, that's not minimizing sin. That's learning sin's place. Sin's place is in your rearview mirror. Amen? <clears throat> Hebrews 6.19 This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. That's what hope does. It takes me behind the veil into the very presence of God. Paul said in Ephesians that we're seated with him in heavenly places. Well, I don't feel much like I'm seated in heaven. Who said anything about your feelings? The word says you're there. Accept what the word says. It just comes down to it. Romans 6, 7 through verse 7. He who has died has been freed from sin. I believe in water baptism, but water baptism is just a sign of what's already happened spiritually. I died to sin. That's going under the water, and I was raised to new life. That old man's dead. The new man's alive. I have to live in that reality. I, I have my, this hope is an expectation and a certainty that God, what God says or who God says I am, that's who I am. I have what he says I have, and I can do what he says I can do. In fact, we need to say that. Say that with me. I am who he says I am. I have what he says I have. And I can do what he says I can do. You need to make that your mantra. You need to make that your, your uh, daily confession. That, and then find scriptures that back that up. Shame is normally rooted in your past, but it's, and it's, but it's gone. That's how my mama was. That's how my daddy was. That's how my, my people are, have always been that way. Well, who cares? You've got a new family. You have a new future. You have a new heritage. You've been born into a new family. Amen? Going back to, to Hebrews 12, verse 2. It says, verse 2, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, shaming the shame. Notice after he did that, and has sat down once for all at the right hand of the throne of God. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He started this work in me. He will bring it to completion. He's capable of doing that. Now, I'm running out of time, so I'm, I'm just going to throw this and I'm going to let you go read this out this week. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 19. It's the story of Mephibosheth. If you go back to the Old Testament, the word for shame in, in the, the Hebrew is Bosheth. Mephibosheth is a derivative of that word shame. It, Mephibosheth literally means the dispeller of shame. And the shame was that Saul and his family had, had, Saul got out of his calling. God called Saul to be a commander, not to be king. And Saul got caught up and, began, and asserted himself as king and took authority where God didn't give him authority and disobeyed God in several places and he paid the penalty with his life. He and Jonathan both were killed because of Saul's sin. 
But when David, because of the covenant he had with, with Jonathan, when he was king, he sent out a decree and said, is there anybody left in, in Saul's lineage? And they said, yeah, there's Mephibosheth. And he said, well, get him, find him. Mephibosheth, boy, that one, say that one three times real fast. Mephibosheth was hiding, cowering, because he thought David was out to kill him. <clears throat> what did David do? He went and sought him out and set him down at the king's table. And he said, this is, this is the, the, the child of my friend Jonathan. And I'm treating him with honor. He's not to live in shame. I'm restoring all of his, his lands that his family owned. And he gets all of the income off of them. Here, you, come here. You're my servant. You go out and you manage his lands. He owns them. He's not going to work them. You do a good job and he gets all the money. And he, but he doesn't have to spend any money. He's eating on my bill. Now, how did Mephibosheth repay David for that? Well, in 2 Samuel 19, when you read that, when Absalom revolted against his father David, Meshibapheth went with Absalom. And when, when Absalom was killed and David came back into power, what do you think David did? He said, I don't care. I'm honoring you because of who you are. You are Jonathan's son and your actions don't matter as much as my covenant with your father matters. And God looks at us in that same way. He says, I don't care what you did. Now, that's not in an absolute sense. He cares when you sin. But he cares more about getting you restored than he does about punishing you because he's already paid the price for the punishment of your sin. He doesn't want to inflict you with it. Why would he? He already took those stripes. He, he took that beating. He took the cross. And he wants us to walk out of that. He wants us to live like Mephibosheth. We've got our ancestral lands. They belong to our father. My father owns the, the cows on a, on, the cattle on a thousand hills. I need a little money. Just go kill a cat. It works. Sell that meat. Got a little cash. Well, I just, I, I just don't have any money. Really? If God says you're rich. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.